Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambender here. I could not be more excited to share this amazing episode with you because it is the first release of a Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. What is Cardio Nerds Rounds, you ask? Well, Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we get to learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from the University of Maryland and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds Rounds are generally held once monthly during the noon hour Eastern Standard Time, but then are released via podcast like in this episode for your asynchronous medical education pleasure. You can find out more about Cardio Nerds Rounds and register for upcoming events on cardionerdsrounds.com forward slash rounds. This episode features a delightful discussion with leading expert Dr. Michelle Kittleson as she walks us through the latest evidence that informs our management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy while sharing so many Kittleson pearls on clinical care and life lessons along the way. CardioNerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeVest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Ivan Chivari for their top-notch production skills that make Cardiac Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, Take it away. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Whenever, wherever you are joining us, we are delighted to welcome you to Cardio Nerds Round. My name is Karen Desai. I am a third-year fellow at the University of Maryland, along with Natalie Stokes, Chief Cardiology Fellow at the University of Pittsburgh. We are your co-chairs for this new series, Cardio Nerds Round. Our goal with this series is to bring together the cardiovascular community, especially trainees, as we all try to learn together and continue the CardioNerds mission of democratizing cardiovascular education. We want to thank Zoll for their time and generous support of this series. So in this series, we're not going to be conducting comprehensive reviews or even primers of topics, but if you do want more in-depth information, you can refer to our website, including today's topic, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Rather, we're going to be focusing on challenging cases, real-life cases, that we all see in practice. And through these cases, hopefully we'll learn some of the nuances of the evidence and the latest guidelines. And I think I've already talked too long, so it's long overdue for me to introduce Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Dr. Kittleson is a director of postgraduate education in heart failure and transplantation. She's the director of heart failure research and professor of medicine at Cedar sinai Hospital, and importantly, on the writing committee for the ACCHA 2020 Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Guidelines. But beyond her academic accolades, I think many of us know Dr. Kittleson through her prolific presence on social media with her hashtag Kittleson Rule. And through her account, she challenges to think deeply about our practices and the many nuances that go into patient care. And that is why it's such a privilege to have Dr. Kittleson here with us today and to help us understand the ECM evidence through a lens of patient-centered care. Dr. Kittleson, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. 
Thank you so much. I am such a Cardio Nerds fan. I was a Cardio Node before Cardio Nerds existed. So I'm just so thrilled to be here with you, Dr. Desai. I can't wait for your cases. Without any further ado, I think it's time for us to round. So we have no disclosures for this talk, and we're going to try to see about three patients. And then we'll hear from Dr. Kittleson how she would approach these patients incorporating the latest evidence. So the first case comes to us from Amit Goyal, co-founder of uh, Cardi Nerds and from the Cleveland Clinic. So we're going to the clinic. We're not in the hospital. So two brothers came to established care, and they're in their early 20s. They have no cardiopulmonary symptoms. They have great exercise and tolerance. They have no dyspnea. They're doing quite well. And the reason they're actually coming is because they have a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Their mother was diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There isn't all the details available to us when they're visiting us in clinic. They do know that their mother had a septal myectomy. And I'll go through the path report here in a second. But the important aspect is that the mother could not afford genetic testing. So we don't know the genotyping for this patient. We do have some information from prior when they were seeing their pediatric cardiologist. And we know both brothers have a normal EKG. There's no evidence of a left ventricular hypertrophy on the EKG or repolarization abnormality. And they both have had recent echocardiograms and there's no hypertrophy on the echocardiogram, normal ejection fraction, no valvular disease. There's no evidence of systolic interior motion. And when they come to visit, they do have this PAT report from their mother's myectomy. And on it, it said that there was myocyte hypertrophy, but there was no evidence of disarray of myocytes or bundles of myocytes, but there was this conspicuous vacuole. So you're given this information and you're asked to advise these two young patients that have now came to your clinic. Dr. Kittleson, how would you approach it? What recommendations or surveillance and screening would you give these brothers? All right. Great case. And I can't wait to dive into the screening and surveillance guidelines. But before we get there, I can't resist. I want to give a quick overview of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And you know what? The older I get, the more I love history and the history of medicine and how do we come to know the things we know. So let's take a little walk down memory lane and get to our evolution of understanding of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And to me, our evolution of understanding parallels the old parable of the six blind men and the elephant. So six blind men come across an elephant, each approaching it from different angles. One sees its tusk, its ear, its trunk, its side, its leg, its tail, and they all try to convince each other what an elephant is, a spear, a fan, a snake, a tree, a wall, a rope, because none of them can see the big picture. So if we think about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, back in the mid-1800s, French pathologists described on post-mortem examination these patients who had idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis with extreme hypertrophy of the ventricular septum. It wasn't until almost a century later that Dr. Thier, an English pathologist, put together a case series of eight patients who had chest discomfort, shortness of breath, palpitations, pre-syncope, seven of whom had sudden cardiac death, and noted they had this asymmetrical hypertrophy of the septum, what he called a muscular hematoma, and that was the first clue of a syndrome existing. In the same year, there was a surgical case report of a patient who was taken to the operating room for treatment of aortic stenosis, 
had all the signs and symptoms of aortic stenosis, even a pressure gradient between the LV and the brachial artery. But in the operating room, the aortic valve was totally normal. Another clue. What is this pseudo-aortic stenosis? But it wasn't until the 1960s when two giants of the field, Dr. Morrow and Dr. Braunwald, hanging out together at the NIH really characterized the clinical and pathophysiological findings of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the cathode. Astonishingly, Dr. Braunwald was in his 20s at the time, Dr. Morrow in his 30s. Okay, even I feel a little bit, you know, not worthy when I hear that. And what they did is they took patients to the cat lab and they were able to define dynamic outflow tract obstruction as distinct from the pressure gradient of aortic stenosis based on changes in LV filling and contractility, the Brock and Barrow Braunwald Morrow sign. And in fact, Dr. Braunwald even was able to characterize the entity of non-obstructive HCM based solely on physical exam that patients had left ventricular hypertrophy, brisk carotid upstrokes, systolic ejection, murmur S4 gallop, but no murmur consistent with dynamic outflow tract obstruction. So the next time you are sitting there gnashing your teeth because you have to memorize what the murmur does in response to squat to stand, valsalva, hand grip, remember that you are standing on the shoulders of giants. And back then, they pioneered the technique of the surgical myectomy based solely on physical exam and stuff in the kappa way before echo. And in a remarkable twist of fate, Dr. Morrow, who performed the first surgical myectomy in 1964, actually had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy himself. True story. Beautiful article about this in Jack 2016 by Drs. Roberts and Dr. Marin. Talk about how he had symptoms of chest discomfort, shortness of breath, palpitations, asked his good friend, Dr. Braunwald, to listen to his heart. And on examination, Dr. Braunwald knew right away that this is what Dr. Morrow had. Dr. Morrow decided he didn't want to take beta blockers, anticoagulation for AFib, get a defibrillator, ultimately passed away at the age of 60 of sudden cardiac death. A better example of any I know that truth is stranger than fiction. Now, it wasn't until late 60s, early 70s that echocardiogram was able to better confirm those findings of dynamic outflow obstruction that were demonstrated so classically in the calf lab by Drs. Braunwald and Murrow. And the story came full circle. The elephant was revealed when the Seidman lab in 1990 identified the first pathogenic mutation. How extraordinary this evolution of understanding. And then a few quick nomenclature pearls. When you're talking about it, it's not IHSS, it's not HOCAM. The best way to describe it is HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and then define for each patient, is it obstructive? Is it non-obstructive? Is it HCM with systolic dysfunction? A better term than burned out HCM's non-descriptive colloquialism, because if you define your patient's path as obstructive, non-obstructive, or systolic dysfunction, their treatment strategies will vary dramatically. So when we think about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we go from genetics to pathophysiology to clinical manifestations. The most common genetic cardiac condition, prevalence one in 500, mutations in the heart muscle contractile apparatus, which cause two major consequences, chaotic and disorganized muscle fibers, 
which can lead to ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death, and thickening of the heart muscle without a cause, which can lead to the outflow tank obstruction, obstructive HCM phenotype, diastolic dysfunction, the non-obstructive HCM phenotype, atrial arrhythmias, and systolic dysfunction, which can progress to advanced heart failure. Remember, for diagnosis, maximal end diastolic wall thickness of 15 millimeters or more anywhere in the left ventricle, doesn't have to be the septum, in the absence of another cause of hypertrophy. So let's go back to this case, this very challenging, not straightforward case that Dr. Desai has provided us with. Is this HCM? Well, the classic pathologic findings of HCM, myocyte disarray, individual myocytes varying size and shape. There's abnormal intracellular connections. There's expansion of the interstitial compartment with areas of replacement fibrosis. There's small vessel disease, medial hypertrophy of intramural vessels. Now, these patients' mom had a septal myectomy, and the pathology was not that exciting. But what do the vacuoles mean? Well, sometimes that's an artifact of how the tissue is prepared. Sometimes it's a late sign of dilated cardiomyopathy. I think we have to put that on hold. We are not sure. And it is important, as noted, to rule out the phenocopies. And when we're thinking about phenocopies, you can think of them organized by age. Unfortunately, for adult cardiologists, and many of these diagnoses are prominent in childhood, the rasopathies, the glycogen storage disease, the mitochondrial disease, that's really what our pediatric friends will be focusing on. As an adult cardiologist, the highest yield diagnosis you don't want to miss is cardiac amyloidosis. And what's a good clue that you should be aware of potential phenocopies? Remember that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, single gene disorder, affects the heart. There are no extra cardiac manifestations. So if the patient has extra cardiac stuff that should twing your radar, neuro findings, renal findings, skin changes, something else is afoot, whether it's Anderson-Fabre, Friedrich's ataxia, infiltrated disease like amyloidosis, and that may focus you towards biochemical screening, neuromuscular assessment, or focused genetic testing. A quickly overview of the genetics of HCM, so mutations in one of eight genes encoding proteins of the cardiac sarcomere are what we care about. Interestingly, 40 to 60% of patients don't have an identifiable mutation, which just speaks to our limited current understanding growing every day of how genetics impact HCM. If you don't have a family history, you're less likely to have an identifiable mutation. And interestingly, non-familial HCM has a more benign course. So what are we going to do with these brothers? We don't have genetic testing of the index case. And if there is no genetic testing of the index case, the mom, and assuming that's not possible, then there's no utility in testing the kids. But what you should do is follow the algorithm of the 2020 HCM guidelines for screening without genetic information. Because, you know, it's better to be lucky than good. You don't want to write these kids off as not having HCM because their mom's story isn't classic. It behooves you to give them the benefit of the doubt and put them through a standard screening and surveillance 
because of their mother's history. You don't want to miss HCM in these young men. So you have a phenotype negative brothers. They've got no symptoms and their ECGs and their echoes are normal. You have no genetic testing. So you're going to do screening ECG and echo at certain intervals. And for adults, those intervals are every three to five years. So what would I do for these two brothers? I would tell them every three to five years, get an ECG and an echocardiogram. If at some point their mom is able to get genetic testing, that may change. But for now, with this information, that's the goal. So a few more pearls on genetic testing, if available. So screening pearls. Genetic testing for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy index patient, the one affected, is a class one indication for the purposes of cascade testing, meaning if you have the information on the affected individual, that can allow directed testing of relatives. A three-generation family history is essential. Why? Because remember, there's variable penetrance expressivity such that maybe the older generation didn't manifest symptoms, but the generation before then did. You might miss a paritable pattern if you don't take a three-generation family history. Genetic counseling is essential. Genetic counseling should always go along with genetic testing because Patients need guidance on the social, psychological, legal, financial, ethical ramifications of their test results, and variant reclassification is essential. This is a field in evolution, so a varying uncertain significance may be reclassified as pathogenic, likely pathogenic, or benign, likely benign, as new information amasses over years. So every few years, the test results should undergo variant reclassification with the assistance of a genetic counselor. And finally, don't forget another role of genetic and family screening, which is the preconception and prenatal genetic counseling that is heritable. So what do you do if you have these genotype positive, phenotype negative patients? Well, you'll do as we talked about, serial assessment, ECG imaging every three to five years or with a change in status. Participation in competitive athletics is reasonable if they are phenotype negative. But remember, a mutation alone does not impact the decision to place an ICD. And ICD is not recommended for primary prevention just on the basis of genetic testing. Now, one thing Dr. Gassan snuck into that case was that these brothers were non-white. How does being non-white impact our diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, in fact, based on a fascinating article in the New England Journal in 2016, we see that race has a big impact on our interpretation of genetic variants for HCN. So the study was on the Human Gene Mutation Database of the NHLBI Exome Sequencing Project. And what they found is the highest frequency variant used to diagnose HCM are actually much more frequent in Black Americans versus white Americans. And so the presence of this high-frequency variant suggests that the variant's overrepresented in Black versus white Americans and may ultimately lead to a false positive diagnosis of HCM. So the consequences of a false positive genetic test could be inappropriate cascade, t- cascade testing of relatives, false positive diagnosis leading to health disparities. So we need to fix this historical, diverse, racial, ethnic control populations to better our understanding of race and ethnicity specific interpretation of genetic variants.
Oh, well, that case exhausted me, Dr. Desai. It was very complicated, but I'm ready. I will save my strength for the next one. Go. Dr. Kittleton, that was phenomenal. There were so many pearls. There's Kittleton rules. That was Kittleton pearls galore. I'm digesting all of them. And I know Amit Goyal is listening and taking care of these patients. So he much appreciated your advice there, Dr. Kittleton. It just got a page that our next patient, Ms. S, is back from MRI. So why don't we go back to the hospital, actually, where this patient has been uh, admitted for an evaluation. So I'm going to go through Ms. S's story here. This second case comes from the University of Maryland, the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center of Excellence. So this is a woman. She's in her late 20s, and she's coming to establish care at the ATM Center of Excellence. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of background on her. So she was an athlete growing up. She played basketball. She had never had any really symptoms while she was exerting herself, including no episodes of exertional syncope. But she did report growing up, she felt like she had palpitations frequently. And going through her history a little bit more, she tells us that at age 16, she remembers one episode of syncope. And going through the circumstances of it, she had just played a basketball tournament, had been exerting herself for some time had been a little dehydrated, and then reports that on standing while after the tournament that she had an episode of syncope, but nothing since then. But three years prior, before she meets you, her primary care heard a murmur on exam to obtain an echocardiogram. And that echocardiogram showed that her septal wall was 1.9 centimeters in max dimension. At rest, she had a gradient of 23 millimeters mercury across her LDOT, and with Valsalva, it increased to 67. And then with treadmill stress, it increased to 126. And so she is coming to you eventually, but some more background. So her cardiologist initially had attempted metoprolol, but she developed significant dizziness and nausea. Then they tried diltiazem, and again, the same thing continued. Because she remained quite symptomatic, she was referred to me, and that was two years prior. 11 grams of myocardium were resected. Postoxia developed AFib and pericarditis, but that all resolved. And her post-op echoed so that it was quite successful. Her LVOC gradient had decreased to 12 with baseline, 21 with amyl nitrate. This was done at different institutions. So that's why there's a, a difference in the provocation. And then there was no systolic anterior motion and trace MR. So she does well for two years, then has this episode of GI illness and is getting frequently pre-syncable following the episode of GI illness. So her cardiologist had obtained another echocardiogram. And at that time, it shows that her maximal thickness of her septal wall is 2.6 centimeters. There's no LVOT obstruction with provocation or at rest. And there's this comment of a possible apical aneurysm. Her cardiologist recommends her for an ICD, but that's not something she necessarily wants to pursue in seeking a second opinion. So she comes to the ACM Center of Excellence. And when she comes, we get a little bit more information that she has a mutation in the beta myosin heavy chain, and it's a likely pathologic variant versus a variant of unknown significance. And we get a little bit more family history, as Dr. Kittleson just told us that we should be obtaining. And we find out that her mother and son both have the variant. Her mother has a non-sustained VT, and it was at a rate of 180, and she's pending an ICD placement. And interestingly, her maternal uncle has had syncope with a car accident, but has refused testing. Unfortunately, her maternal half-brother recently passed away and was thought to be to a drug overdose. And they did an autopsy, and it showed that the septal wall thickness was 1.8 centimeters with genetic testing pending. She reports no symptoms, and when she sees you, she says her blood pressure is in uncontrolled. She's not on any specific medication, and she's just completed a seven-day ulcer with a prior cardiologist, and there's been no non-sustained VT on it. 
the MRI that was just done is basically going to be showing that she had a hypertrophied septum, uh, dyskinesia of the septum, and what was thought to be an apical aneurysm was more likely apical thinning being accentuated compared to the asymmetric septal hypertrophy, and there's 8 to 12% late gadolinium enhancement. So that's a lot of information. So basically, this is a patient that has a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, was symptomatic, had received a myectomy, then did well, but again became presyncopal, had an echo that shows that her wall thickness remained consistently increased, has an MRI that shows that she has late gadolinium enhancement, and no true apical aneurysm. And she is now referred for an ICD, but that's not necessarily something she wants to pursue and is seeking your opinion. So Dr. Kittleton, I think we need your help here. And, you know, we're rounding with you. I, I don't know what the right step is here. What do you think we should do? Okay, excellent. So let's talk about sudden death risk stratification in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or basically, how do you predict the future? And I want to go through the 2020 HCM guidelines. But before I go to the 2020, we're going to take a step back and review quickly the 2011 sudden cardiac death ICD recommendations from 2011 HCM guidelines, because I want to point out three clinical parameters that used to be used for sudden cardiac death risk stratification that are no longer. And those three are the degree of LV outflow tract obstruction, the genetic mutation, and abnormal blood pressure response to exercise. Those three are no longer considered important independent risk factors for sudden cardiac death risk stratification in the 2020 guidelines. So try to excise them from your memory banks and let's focus on the 2020 HCM algorithm. So number one, the only class one indication for a defibrillator in HCM is secondary prevention. If you've had a sudden cardiac death event, you bought yourself a defibrillator, it's a class one. Primary prevention, where we're trying to predict the future, these can be class 2A or 2B, depending on what risk factors you have. And it's important to remember the big five. Family history of sudden cardiac death, massive LVH, unexplained syncope, apical aneurysm, EF 50% or less. If you have one of those, you ICD is reasonable class 2A indication. Downgraded, demoted in the 2020 guidelines is the presence of NSVT on ambulatory monitoring and extensive late gadolinium enhancement on MR. Those now, if present in isolation, are a 2B indication. ICD may be considered. So I want you to remember the big five, family history, massive LVH, unexplained syncope, apical aneurysm, EF 50% or less. But I also want you to pay attention to the fine print. Table seven from the 2020 HCM guidelines covers it very nicely. So family history of sudden death, what does that mean? First degree or close relatives, 50 years or less than age, massive LVH, what about that? 30 millimeters, 28 millimeters is borderline. Unexplained syncope, there's one pearl we all know beaten to us since medical school is that history is the best way to uncover the etiology of syncope. So convince yourself based on your history, whether this is neurocardiogenic basal vagal or systolic dysfunction. So HEF-REF 
we usually think about an EF 40% or less. Not so in patients with HCM. Patients with HCM are hyperdynamic at baseline. So once their EF falls to 50 or below, something bad is happening. They're on a different trajectory. So think about systolic dysfunction in HCM. Be worried when the EF is 50% or lower. LV apical aneurysm. Extensive LGE on MRI, that's a 2B, but what does extensive mean? 15% or more of the LV mass. And non sustained BTN and ambulatory monitor, what should we really care about? So place it for 24 to 48 hours and look for those episodes that are frequent, longer, faster. More than three, more than 10 beats, more than 200 beats per minute. So now that we have an idea of the fine print, let's walk through the algorithm from the guidelines with our patient. She has not had a prior event. This is not secondary prevention. So an ICD is not a class one indication. What about the big five risk factors that would buy her an ICD is reasonable class 2A indication? So family history of sudden death. So this uncle syncope in a car accident refuses to get tested. That felt a little concerning. The brother with the drug overdose and a thick heart, that's kind of concerning too. We don't get their ages. We don't know how old the uncle was. But I'm, I'm buying a family history here. I think this is concerning enough. Massive LVH, well, her septum was 2.6 centimeters pre-myectomy, so she doesn't get that. Unexplained syncope, I think her syncopal events are very clearly and reliably vasovagal by the excellent history Dr. Desai provided. Apical aneurysm, I mean, God bless those cardiac radiologists, can they just make a decision? So apical aneurysm, you know, gosh, maybe based on their hedging. And finally, EF 50% or less, no, she doesn't meet that criteria. She has no NSBT. She has no late gadolinium enhancing extensive over 15%. So I would say, based on her family history, which is troubling, and this apical specter of an apical aneurysm, that an ICD is reasonable class 2A. But what about shared decision? And one fantastic component of the 2020 HCM guidelines is the explicit recommendation for shared decision-making with a full disclosure of risks, benefits, anticipated outcomes, and the patient expresses their goals and concerns. But let us not forget that shared decision-making is not an excuse to abdicate medical decision-making. It is still your responsibility to provide a medical recommendation, to have a medical opinion, and then work with the patient to decide how that medical recommendation fits in with their goals, values, and preferences. So how would I phrase this to the patient? I would say, based on your family history, which is not a slam dunk, but concerning, and this potential of an apical aneurysm, I believe the safest, based on the guidelines, is for you to have a defibrillator to prevent a future event. And then let's talk about what that means to you. So make a decision, put your nipple down. What about the HCM sudden cardiac death calculator from the European Society of Cardiology? The 2020 HCM guidelines did not incorporate this into the management algorithm. Why? And I'm going to quote to you directly from the guidelines. Because individual patients may consider the impact of sudden cardiac death risk assessments differently, it is the consensus of this committee 
that pre-specified management recommendations should not be assigned to calculating risk estimates as the sole arbiter of the decision to insert an ICD. And furthermore, contemporary SCD risk markers such as LV apical aneurysm, late gadolinium enhancement, EF less than 50% are not included, so their impact on the risk estimate is uncertain. So, you know, I love the ASCVD 10-year risk from the pooled cohort equation to help me decide in the statin because it's a statin. A defibrillator is a whole new ballgame of risk. And I think to try to assign precision where there may not be precision makes the decision potentially more difficult. So that is why I follow the guidelines and go by the algorithm and the shared decision-making discussion. Now, the other thing sprinkled in there was a history of a surgical myectomy. Does surgical myectomy impact sudden cardiac death risk in HCM? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. Let's look at what the data tells us. So an observational case series of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and septal reduction therapy, patients who've undergone this, have a lower risk of sudden cardiac death, ICD discharge, adjusted hazard ratio 0.69. Another study, uh, this one from the Mayo Clinic, took 125 patients with HCM and an ICD. The ICD discharge rate per year was lower if you had septal reduction therapy, 0.24% per year versus 4.3%. But what are we dealing here with? We're dealing with the difficulty of association versus causation. Does the septal reduction therapy reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death? Or are patients who have the dynamic outflow truck obstructions such that they require SRT, are they just a different phenotype that makes them lower risk for sudden death? I I don't think we have an answer. So the two things I would take away from this dearth of data is number one, you don't use a potential reduction in the risk of sudden cardiac death to support the decision to proceed with septal reduction therapy. And number two, you don't use the presence of septal reduction therapy as a justification of why a patient might not need an ICD. So this is complicated, right? And in fact, the 2020 guidelines put clear competencies in place when they talk about what should cardiologists be able to do on their own versus at HCM or comprehensive HCM centers. So any cardiologist worth their salt should be able to do the initial surveillance and testing of a patient with HCM, initial treatment recommendations, and rapid assessment for a change in the disease course. Comprehensive HCM centers should be responsible for those really tricky class 2B ICD decision-making decisions, septal reduction therapies, advanced heart failure management, high-intensity competitive sports decisions, pregnancy, pediatric HCM. And speaking of pregnancy, I think Dr. Desai has another case for us. Dr. Kittleton, we are definitely about to go to our last patient, but there's a couple people rounding with us that had a, a few questions. And the first one comes from my co-fellow, um, Manu Mysore. His question is, when would you consider an implantable loop recorder for patients with ECM, especially if some of the main risk factors are not present? And I know you mentioned most of the data is from 24 to 48 hour holders. So what was the role of implantable loop recorders for the kind of patient? So I'm a big believer in phoning a friend, in this case, a friendly electrophysiologist. 
So if I'm on the fence, I don't have one of my slam dunk five big risk factors to give me a 2A, ICD is reasonable for primary prevention, but something doesn't feel right. I'm getting a lot of NFBT on the holder, more than 10 beats, more than 200 beats per minute, multiple episodes. And I'm thinking this is what the patient needs. I'm going to send them to EP. And if the patient remains on the fence, but I'm you know, waking up at two in the morning because my subconscious just isn't quite happy, the purpose of the implantable loop recorder might be to provide additional evidence maybe to convince even the patient that this is the right approach. So I think it comes into those areas between the guidelines where something doesn't sit right, but your instincts tell you this patient is at high enough risk. I need to do more. I need more information. So that's where I'd see the role where you're sliding into your two Bs. You're not quite sure what to do and or the patient needs more advice, evidence, confirmation that it's the right thing to do. Thank you so much, Dr. Kittleton. And there was one more question from Rocio Blanco. What is the value of or prognostic information related to an aneurysm, but you don't see scar in the aneurysm on an MRI? How does the apical aneurysm, because I did mention it and you did mention we get a lot of different reads regarding aneurysms from an echo to an MRI, is it truly an aneurysm? What role does it have in prognosticating and or informing the decision for an ICD? So there's definitely now very nice data to show that the presence of an LV apical aneurysm, independent risk factor or sudden death, which is why it buys itself one of the big five indications for class 2A primary prevention. SCAR can sometimes be, I think, more misleading. And so that's why SCAR alone doesn't buy itself as strong a recommendation. But I think my best advice you know, in the multidisciplinary world we live in, where no one can know anything ever. I'm so glad I went to medical school over two decades ago. As a side note, I couldn't memorize all this stuff anymore, is to use your colleagues, make your consultants, make your experts work for you. So if something doesn't make sense, you go to the source. So actually, I would be traipsing down to radiology, but more like virtually or figuratively, I'd be harassing them by email or text and say, come on here. What do you mean by this? What's really going on here? Help me, help you, help the patient. So I think when something doesn't quite fit, and you're right, sometimes there is so much of a gray area in interpretation of imaging studies, go to the source to get a better sense of what's the right thing for the patient. And I think I could listen to your pearls all day. I think I have to transfer out the Cedars-Sinai to round with you, if you'll allow me. But one more patient for now that we are going to round on, and that's Ms. A. This patient, she is a woman in her early 30s, and she again is coming to establish care at Museum Center of Excellence. She was diagnosed with HCM without obstruction one year prior to seeing it. And she reports that she had syncope at a young age as well. It was not exertional. It was situational. It was during the blood draw. So she says that her family history includes her father passed away from an MI in his mid-50s. She doesn't know too many other details beyond that. And then she's been noting for several months now that she's had exertional dyspnea, several years that she's had exertional dyspnea. So that prompted initially an echo last year. And that echo, an MRI done one year prior, on which there was correlation, showed HCM without obstruction. The maximum wall thickness was 2.5 centimeters in the basal to mid uh, anterior wall. There was no systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, and there was no late gadolinium enhancement. She had genetic testing with appropriate counseling, and genotyping was negative. She was started on metoprolol, but 
she developed dizziness and hypotension, so she stopped. She works in healthcare. And at work, about six months before seeing you, she had an episode of syncope, and she was noted immediately after because her colleagues obtained vitals to be hypotensive, tachycardic in the 150s, and she was orthostatic. And she, at the time, deferred a EP study to evaluate this episode of syncope, but a loop recorder was placed. She comes to see you four months pregnant. Her first trimester, she had hyperemesis gravidarum, and she lost 15 pounds, and she had multiple episodes of pre-syncope. Just before coming to the clinic, her loop demonstrated that she had an episode of SVT with rates in the 150s, and during that episode, she did have an episode of syncope. Her prior cardiologist recommended rapamil, but she didn't tolerate propylol well, but she was hesitant because she was highly concerned that this may lead to placental hypoperfusion. And she was concerned that she may develop another episode of syncope being on this medication. So she comes to see you, and immediately after your visit, on her loop recorder, she had a 10-beat run of NSVT. It was at a rate of 200, and she is now seeking your advice, now four months pregnant with an episode of NSVT, frequent syncope, presumably thought to be SVT. So Dr. Kittleton, one more time. Can we get your opinion for this patient? Oh, my gosh. I mean, pregnant women scare me. I just I just want to be honest here. I want full disclosure um, so everyone understands where I'm coming from. I've been pregnant three times. I was not scared of myself, but I'm very scared of pregnant women. But I'm going to take my courage in both hands. How would I advise this patient regarding medications in pregnancy, mode of delivery, and IFCD? The first thing we need to know about pregnancy and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is based on the limited experience. Outcomes are generally good. What do the guidelines tell us? The guidelines say that pregnant women should be selected beta blockers should be administered for symptoms related to alpha tract obstruction or arrhythmias. What does selected beta blockers mean? Basically anything but a tenolol. We'll get to that. In most pregnant women, vaginal delivery is recommended. It seems so counterintuitive that the crazy stress of vaginal delivery can actually be locked. The stress on the heart that is cesarean section, but in fact, that's true because cesarean section is a surgery with anesthesia. So vaginal delivery is preferred. Pregnancy is generally safe. Of course, shared decision-making, shared discussion is so important. The guidelines also tell us that epidural anesthesia is reasonable as long as you avoid hypotension. And that serial echocardiogram should be performed, particularly during the second or third trimester. And if you're going to give a beta blocker, give anything but a tenolol. So when we think about this woman, her syncable episodes sound very clearly orthostatic, likely related to the vasodilation of pregnancy, not well tolerated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, especially with hyperemesis gravidarum and hypovolemia. She does have some SVT on that monitor, but we don't know how well that correlated with symptoms. And she had one run of NSVT. But there's a final piece that I want to highlight, which is the level of evidence of the guidelines for pregnancy in HCM. And the level of evidence of every guideline, the level of evidence C, limited data, or C, expert opinion. When we think about the outcomes of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy during pregnancy, there can be heart failure, atrial arrhythmias. Generally, the patients who have these problems are patients who have problems coming into pregnancy. But again, pregnancy is generally considered safe. And now what about the whole defibrillator question? What about a defibrillator in this patient? So let's go back 
and go through the algorithm from the 2020 guidelines and apply it to this patient. So she has not had a prior sudden cardiac event. She does not buy herself secondary prevention as a class one indication. What about this family history? Myocardia infarction in her father in his mid-50s. So what we all, I know, have learned in taking family histories from patients is that when a patient says, my dad died of a heart attack, that can mean anything from an aortic dissection to a pulmonary embolism to an atherosclerotic plaque rupture to a BF arrest. So I don't know what to make of this father died of an MI. He was in his mid-50s, so not less than 50. So I- I'm not sure. I'm troubled by the family history, but I wish we could get more information about it. Massive LDH, she does not have her septum's 2.5 centimeters. Unexplained syncope, I think her syncopal episodes really do appear vasovagal and or hypovolemic. Apical aneurysm, nope. EF is above 50%. She's no NSVT. I mean, that one episode later, but not enough that we would consider rising to the level of concern at this point. And she has no late gadolinium enhancement on MR. So, you know, you're kind of stuck somewhere between a 2A, if you believe the family history, or a 3 if you don't. So what would I do in this situation? Like I said, when in doubt, phone a friend. On a side note, my two most important ways of preventing burnout in medicine, one is to phone a friend, to ask for help, to talk about cases with trusted colleagues, and the second is to vent in a safe space. But so do number one or do number one and two when it comes to this patient. I would call my favorite electrophysiologist and say, listen, I'm not sure what to do here. I talk to the patient. I'd say, I'm not sure about this family history. Let's get someone else to weigh in on this important decision. But I know what you're thinking. You're saying, wait a minute, she's pregnant. What are you going to do? Put an ICD in a pregnant woman? Come on. What kind of a monster do you think I am? Of course not. But let's talk about why there's no urgency to put an ICD in this patient. So we have some data from observational series about the timing of ICD implantation. So this is a, a observational series over 400 patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, ICDs placed for primary or secondary prevention, followed for over six years. What do we see? Patients do get appropriate shocks over follow-up higher event rate for secondary versus primary prevention, not surprising. But the average time for ICD implant to actually needing a shock is over three years. So it is inherently unpredictable, the event of sudden cardiac death. And you are trying to predict the future. But based on the information we have, it's not an urgency. So ICD, if indicated for primary prevention, can wait until after pregnancy. Yeah, Dr. Kittleton, I think this was probably my most enjoyable round of the year. It was such a pleasure to hear how you think, process, and how much you focus on taking the global picture and really, 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 like you said, relying on the full team, putting the patient at the center of that team. And it was really just a joy to hear these cases. Uh, One of our attendees on rounds here did have a question. It was not related specifically to these cases, but regarding anticoagulation. So I, I will pose the question. It's from Ahmed El-Gamal. And his question is, in patients with HCM who develop atrial fibrillation, do you anticoagulate them regardless of their CHADS VAS score? I love that question because the answer is unequivocally, 100%, absolutely, 
Yes. There are two conditions I know of and probably some geniuses in the audience because you guys are also smart. We'll give me like seven others. But I can think of two conditions where you should anticoagulate for atrial fibrillation regardless of your CHADS2 VASC score. And one is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and two is cardiac amyloidosis. Now, the cardiac amyloidosis is one that's not guideline-based yet. I think it will be soon when updated guidelines come up. But the risk is so high in patients who have amyloidosis and in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So memorize your charge 2 bats score, apply it to every patient you have, but don't apply it to patients who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy anticoagulate them. Uh, the other random pearl I'll tell you if there isn't any other question pending, you know, let's let's just talk for 30 seconds about septal reduction therapy, surgical myectomy or alcohol septoblation. Remember, remember, remember that there's only one reason to ever move towards septal reduction therapy in a patient, and that's relief of symptoms that are refractory to medical therapy with first-choice beta blocker, second-choice uh, calcium channel blocker. There is no other clear demonstrable benefit. So the only reason is if their symptoms are intolerable with a demonstrated gradient despite treatment with medications. And the second pearl I want to say about the outflow tract obstruction, when you dose your beta blocker for someone with symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you do not dose it to their gradient, you dose it to their symptoms. The gradients are dynamic. The gradients will change with activity. You're not going to be able to measure the exact gradient. The gradient is useful for the diagnosis. It sets you on the path of what they need, but it is not something you titrate to for treatment. Titrate your beta blocker to symptoms. Couldn't resist. Just a few little pearls in there. Of course. And you know, Dr. Kittleton, when we talked before, you said there are certain pearls for a great talk. You said the Kittleton rule for a great talk is to be useful, to be funny, which you, you accomplished that. I don't have the comedic gene in me, but to finish on time. And because we are right up against the one o'clock hour, I am going to close our session today, finish round, and hopefully we will see you all next time when we conduct Cardio Nerds Round on September 17th on cardiovascular prevention with Dr. Martha Galati. But again, I just really want to thank you, Dr. Kittleson, and see you all next time.